0: You are listening to the podcast of The Gallery Church. Our desire is to display the goodness of God's grace and love to New York City. For more information about our church, please visit us on the web at gallerychurch.com. Comes from Matthew one verses one through seventeen, and um, sit back and enjoy me attempt all these names. (laughs) The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, and Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, see, there you go, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, uh, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehobim, and Rehobim, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of of Manasseh. Yeah. Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Je- uh, Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, and after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah and the father of she- Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Jerubabel, the father of Abiyad, and Abiad the father of Alakayim, Alakim, and Alakim the father of-, of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eli- uh, Eliud, and Eliud the father of Elazar, Elezai- uh, and Elazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, to whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations, from Abraham to David, were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And this is the word of the Lord.
1: It's wonderful to be with you this morning. My name's Adam, and I just want to thank Stan for inviting me along. I was here a couple months ago, and it was just a delight to get to uh, preach for you and worship with you as a community. I'm a pastor down the road at a church that's going to be called Hope Chelsea for another week or so, and uh, we're in the middle of... uh, merging with a church on the Upper West Side to create a new Vineyard Expression of Church for the West Side of Manhattan. So you'll be able to find me at vineyardmanhattan.org now instead of Hope Chelsea. So, but uh, it's just uh, warm and wonderful to be able to be here in Chelsea with you. So thanks so much for the invitation. My wife, Stansy, is here with me. It's wonderful to be with you every time we get to worship together and preach. Thanks so much for being with me. Love you so much. Um, all right, let's get going on this awesome text, the Word of the Lord. It's going to speak to us. The genealogy of Jesus is gonna speak to us. I wanna ask you a question. Are you a good person? (laughs) Couple shrugs, yeah, sure, maybe. The brave no, is that you? Well done. (laughs) Are you a good person? Um, We really want desperately to be good. We really want desperately to be good. Maybe even more than that, we need to believe that we are good. We need to believe that we have some sort of good or goodness in us. If I could ask this question a different way, what would the cost for you be uh, to learn that you're not a good person? What would the cost be for us as a people to learn that we're not good? This question is, Written into our culture, it's actually particularly written into this season that we're in right now, in the Christmas season, through the moral mythology of Santa Claus. I'm sure that you know the song, uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. I'd like to look at some of the lyrics with you. Uh, The first verse goes, uh, you'd better watch out, you'd better not cry, you'd better not pout. I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. So how many other songs do you know and like that begin with the phrase, you'd better watch out? Right? That's just terrifying. You'd better watch out. And why should we watch out? I guess we should watch out because Santa's coming to town. Now, why should we watch out because Santa's coming to town? We're going to learn that in verse 2. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out if you're naughty or nice, Santa Claus is coming to town. So you'd better watch out because Santa Claus is coming to town with moral force. With moral force, Santa's arriving on his sleigh, and, and he's, he's got a list, and he's, he's checked it twice. So like, he's, he's got some scrupulosity that he's carrying with him in this moral force. Like, it's very unlikely that you're going to end up on the wrong list. If you've been naughty, that you're going to end up on the nice list, because he's checking it twice. And he'll find out if you've, you're naughty or nice. And just in case you think that you maybe are going to end up on the wrong list, that you're going to do better than your deeds have earned. Santa sees you when you're sleeping. Oh, God. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, right? So be good for goodness sake. Santa knows you can't escape his watchful eye. Right and the results of all of this is a sort of moral mythology right where Santa associates with the morally pure. Santa associates with the morally pure. And deep down implicitly maybe even explicitly we actually agree with this. We think that the morally pure the morally good deserve association and that the morally bad deserve to be left alone. This of course right would be the cost of finding out that we're not good people. We're done. We're done. No one's going to be around us anymore, and it would be right for them to not be around us. Does the world, or does God, chronically operate according to this logic of moral purity? Are we able to be with anyone when we're overwhelmed by feelings of how bad we are, or maybe even how bad we feel like our families are? or our society or our culture and how stained we can feel by them? What will be left for us when all is revealed? When the books are opened and everything is found out and God help us, there's our name on the naughty list. I've given the sermon the egregiously provocative title, Jesus is on the naughty list. (laughs) Will you pray with me? (laughs) 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 Heavenly Father, it's just a delight to be in your presence this morning, to sit under the authority and the power and the good news of your word, to worship you. And God, we just pause now and welcome your presence. You're already here, but we welcome you even more, God, We create space in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits, in our emotions. All the other things that could crowd out your presence just among us right now. God, by the power of your spirit, would you help us to set them aside? That you might be with us, God. Be with us, God. Lord, would you pour your Holy Spirit out on me now to preach and teach your word in power? God, only you can minister your word. So would you do that, Lord? And God, would you pour your spirit out on all of us gathered here today that we might be able to receive the things that you have for us today? Would you do these things, Lord? I ask for them in the name of your son. Amen. We long for someone to say we're good. We long for someone to say we're good. And Jesus' genealogy affirms Jesus' superlative goodness. Uh, Genealogies were a a very common form of uh, literary genre in the ancient world, and they performed a number of purposes. Uh, The first obvious purpose that a genealogy would perform in the ancient world is just to share who's descended from who and keep a record of a family line. But that actually, in almost every circumstance, is not the main function that's being performed by a genealogy in the ancient world. Uh, Often, the task of writing down who's descended from who uh, performed a, a deeper function than just the uh, mundanity of record keeping. So for example, we will often find genealogies in the Bible in places where the Bible is concerned about the ownership of land. And so in that moment, you'll see lists of who's descended from who, but the primary points, the function of the genealogy in that context is to say, who owns this land? Who lives here, right? That's the primary function. Another major function, and perhaps the most important function that genealogies performed in the ancient world, was the function of legitimization or commending someone. So, especially in uh, the ancient cultural context, someone who was uh, important or high ranking, or in particular a king or a ruler. The genealogies of those people would function to legitimize their high ranking and status. They've performed a function of legitimization. And Matthew's genealogy is doing that for Jesus here. Matthew's genealogy is legitimizing Jesus and commending Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the long looked for son of David. We see this in verses 1 and verse 16 and 17 uh, by the use of particular titles to commend Jesus to you. So verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, those titles, son of David, son of Abraham, are saying, look, Jesus is descended from these particular people and so he owns these titles, son of David, son of Abraham. Verses 1 and 16 and 17 also call Jesus the Christ. They give him the title of the Christ, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So through titles that are used in the genealogy, we see Jesus commended as the Messiah. We also see that he's commended as the Jewish Messiah, as the son of David, by association with heroes of faith, with particular good people that are in the genealogy. So we see that Jesus is descended from good guys like Abraham, Isaac, David, Hezekiah, Josiah. And in all these things, a first century Jewish reader would look at this and go, look at these superlative qualifications that Jesus has for being the Messiah. And we also long to have a good record, a good report, a good resume set about us. Uh, Perhaps a a modern analogy uh, in in our own world to the function that an ancient genealogy would have uh, performed is maybe something like an academic record, or maybe even better, like a resume for a job, right? A list, a, a, a record of things we've done and why those things legitimize us for the job that we currently have. Or if we're applying for another job, why they legitimize us or commend us or recommend us for a job that we would like, right? And Jesus here has a great resume for being the Messiah, the son of David, and we long for good word to be spoken about us in our records and resumes as well. And so when we compile those things, we put them together in the best, most favorable, endearing, superlative way about us as we can. But often when we do that, we're excluding certain things, or conveniently forgetting certain things. We don't lead with the things that are challenging or bad or embarrassing about us. We long for someone to say we're good, but if we're honest, our real records, not just the ones that we make for ourselves, but our real records, the honest look at ourselves, says that we shouldn't be called good. We long for someone to say we're good, but our record says that no one should. Our real records are full of blemishes, things we're ashamed of, bad things, bad words that are spoken over us. That's such a contrast to Jesus' genealogy where it's full of association with good people and titles that he has. Even the very structure of the Matthean genealogy is uh, shouting the superlative nature of Jesus' qualifications. I don't know if you're familiar with the ancient Hebrew interpretive practice of gemetria. Say gemetria for me. Gematria Gematria is an ancient Hebrew interpretive practice where numerical values are assigned to letters of the alphabet. So for example, the letter A might be 1, B might be 2, C might be 3, and so on. And uh, what sometimes would happen in Gematria is they would take a word or a name and they would take the the numerical values that were assigned to the letters of the name and add them all together and say, this number represents this name. And then they do various interpretive maneuvers with that. Well, the name David in the Hebrew. D, V, D is, according to Gematria, the number four for D, David, plus the number six for V, and the number four again for the last D. So, D, V, D, four plus six plus four is fourteen. I don't know if you remember in the genealogy a particular number that was repeated a number of times in verse 17. This is what the text says. So all the generations of, uh, from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So what Matthew has done is even in the structure of Jesus' genealogy, he's taken the numerical value of the name of David right, of whom he's trying to say Jesus is David's son, and he's structuring the genealogy according to three sets of 14 generations over and over again. So it's like Matthew's genealogy is shouting David, David, David over and over again as you work through the genealogy. You can't miss the fact that Jesus is the superlative descendant of David, In the ancient world, everyone wanted a superlative genealogy and you could massage your genealogy in various ways to uh, make it better. One of the ways that you could do this was by adding things into your genealogy or your narratives about yourself. So, for example, the ancient Persian king Cyrus, uh, when he conquered Babylon he created narratives about himself that added into his story a myth about being legitimized by having been chosen by Marduk, the Babylonian god. That's one way that you could legitimize yourself in an ancient genealogy, was add into your genealogy people or deities that had chosen you or were related to you. So, uh, in the uh, Cyrus Cylinder, which is an archaeological artifact that we have from this time. Uh, this is, a, uh, we should have a picture of it. Uh, yeah, there you go. That's the Cyrus Cylinder. All the little uh, marks that you see in it are uh, cuneiform etchings. It's an ancient writing system. And this is a decree that King Cyrus wrote when he took over Babylon. Uh, you can find that at the British Museum. And this is what he said about himself in that cylinder. He said, he, meaning Marduk, the Babylonian god, inspected and checked all the countries, seeking for the upright king of his choice. He took under his hand Cyrus and called him by his name, proclaiming him aloud for the kingship over all of everything. So Cyrus makes himself more legitimate in the eyes of the Babylonians by saying, your God picked me to rule over you. Very common tactic in the ancient worlds. The other thing that you can do in the ancient world to make your genealogy better and to better legitimize you is you can scrub out embarrassing genealogical data. So Cyrus also did this in his genealogies. If he had a line that had too many people of Persian descent in it, where it was actually from, he would just, beep, 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 just scrub those out and replace it maybe with a Babylonian name. Right? And so you can scrub out embarrassing genealogical data and it's hard for us when we think of genealogies and family to think of how important this would have been to people in the ancient world. But there are whole discourses uh, from people in different parts of the world about what to do with embarrassing genealogical data. Do, Do you just get it out there? Do you hold on to it from other people so you can expose them and ruin them at the right time? Do you just keep everything a secret and hide everybody's shame? What do you do with embarrassing genealogical data maybe we can think about it when we think about things in ourselves right our own resumes our own records of life do we add things to our records do we remove them how much how much scrubbing out do we do right of our records and resumes in our own life Um, The company Checkster is a reference checking company. In 2020, they just did an informal survey of people who use their products. They found uh, in their survey response that 78% of people lie or would consider lying on a job application. 78% of people, right? Maybe it's a big lie, maybe it's a small lie, but 78% of people lie or would consider lying on a job application. Of those 78% of people, 60% said that their lie took the form of saying they'd mastered skills that they actually have barely used. I don't know if we've ever done a little embellishment of that sort in any of our professional data. Anyone's LinkedIn profile says we've got however many years of some skill. (laughs) 50% of those people said that they would lie in the form of saying that they worked at a company longer in order to omit some embarrassing uh, part of their job history. 40% of those people said that they would lie about having a degree from a prestigious university. What about maybe like our records in school, right? A, a, A place in our life where we might have a permanent record. Or even a record before the law. In my early 20s, I was in this like half church, half academic sort of training program. And uh, one day I took a test and it was an at-home test. And I really wasn't very well prepared for it and uh, I knew I was gonna do badly on the test and I kind of didn't care. But at one part of the test, there was a scripture memory part. And uh, I just could not remember the order of a couple words in the middle of the verse. And it just was killing me. It was just eating me up. And I was just, I was trying to resist. I was like, this is an at-home test. I, don't, come on, just, just put your best guess down there. But finally I was like, Oh, I'm just going to clarify. I'm not cheating. I'm just clarifying what I know. And so ironically, I opened up the Bible to the part that I needed to look at. And I was like, oh yeah, I basically knew that already and I wrote it down. Well, like a week later, I was like, what are you doing? Like you're cheating on like a church test. Like, come on. So, and I like, I, I got like a C on the test. Like it was the most inefficient use of cheating ever. I went from getting a C minus to a C. It's like, why didn't I just cheat on the whole thing? Anyways, I went and confessed it to like the program overview people and they're like, okay, you know, thanks for confessing, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we need you to fill out this form. First of all, you failed the test and we need you to fill out this form saying that like there's an incident of academic dishonesty and it's going to go in your folder. And I was like, dang it, that's not going to go away. There's a folder somewhere sitting around a permanent record that says cheated on it from that test I took. (laughs) What I would do to get rid of that folder. (laughs) I wonder if you have anything like that in your own life. What you would do to get rid of this particular blemish, this thing you can't forget, this record that's against you. Our response, of course, is a desire to scrub them out, to hide our blemishes, Maybe the things we're done that we're embarrassed of. Maybe the things that were done to us, things that mar our record and our story and idea and vision of ourselves. All of that hiding, of course, is just a momentary solution. We know that we're going to get found out. We see it in the world. We say things like, "The truth will out." It was in our song. Santa, check the list twice. He sees you. We're going to get found out. If not today, then tomorrow. And, and here's the real rub, if not by somebody else, then by ourselves. Because that's an awful feeling, right? When you've been found out by yourself, you can't live with the lie anymore. And so you just know you're going around faking something or hiding something wondering if all the love and affirmation or friendship that you have is because people love this image over here and not what's really going on with you, not who you are. That's a real burdensome feeling, isn't it? To be found out by yourself, to carry that alone. And so we're in a real predicament. The logic of moral purity and all the hiding and hiddenness that it creates in us seems to be something that we experience in the world all the time. The world is operating, according to this logic, nonstop. And we do our best to hide and lie, but, but we know that we're going to be found out. And it's actually interesting. It seems even that Jesus' own genealogy is propped up by the same moral logic, that Jesus himself is good and commended in the chapter, in Matthew chapter 1, by the people he's associated with. He just happens to have won that whole game. But is also good by association. And yet, where failure is found, there is hope to be had. Where failure is found, there's hope to be had. Let's look at Jesus' genealogy again. I, I might have gone through it too quickly the first time around. Is there anything in the genealogy that an ancient author might have said, let's scrub that out? Let's get rid of that. Like, we don't, we don't need to see that. Is there anything? I don't know if you saw the name Judah come through in verses two and three of Matthew chapter one. Uh, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah. Judah, oh yeah, the Judah that sold his brother into slavery, that Judah, the Judah that was eaten up by bitterness and familial conflict, and so he treated his brother like an object. This is what the text of Genesis 37, 25 to 27 says. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, well, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. Judah sold his brother into slavery. Well, That's kind of embarrassing to have in a genealogy. Why not just, why not just scrub that out? Why not just remove that? Now some of you who know your Bibles might be saying, Adam, we've read the Old Testament and the name of Judah shows up a lot. It becomes a pretty important tribe of people. God calls himself the line of Judah at one point. You can't scrub out the name of Judah. It's in there too much. Fine, you Bible-know-it-alls. <laughs> what about Rehoboam? Who knows about Rehoboam? Rehoboam, I feel like I've met someone named, no you haven't, no one's met a name, no one knows who Rehoboam is. Rehoboam was one of Solomon's sons, Solomon was one of the great Israelite kings, he was sort of the most empire-buildy of the Israelite kings under the reign of Solomon, Israel sort of reached its most regionally uh, 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 powerful heights, and, uh, and Solomon put a lot of uh, work into that, uh, conscripted his people into labor multiple times to do building projects and military projects, all that sort of stuff. And so when Solomon passed away, God's people of Israel came to Rehoboam and said, Rehoboam, we loved your dad. He was great, but we're tired. He conscripted us into labor one too many times. We would love it if you would take it a bit easier on us. And Rehoboam went to his buddies, his close advisors, and, and talked it over. And this is what Rehoboam came back with in 1 Kings 12.11. said this, My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions.
0: Rehoboam!
1: <laughs> scourge you with scorpions, guy! Wow! A brutal boss. Why not scrub him out? What's he in there? Ray a bomb. How about Manessa? Manessa. Oh my gosh. Anybody know Manessa? Nobody knows Manessa. Manessa was so bad. He sinned so hard in so many different ways, all over the country, with so many different people. That when his grandson. Josiah was king two years later, and Josiah was one of the best kings. He loved the Lord. He executed all these reforms. When Josiah was king, none of his reforms were enough to cleanse the land from the generationally polluting sin of Manasseh, such that even in Josiah's reign, God said, I still have to punish these people because of the sins of that guy back there. This is what 2 Kings 24, two to four says. The Lord sent Babylonian, Aramaean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by the servants of the prophets. Surely those things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh. And all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord was not willing to forgive. Now that's a terrifying phrase. Why not scrub these out? If you're an ancient biographer of Jesus, why not remove these blemishes from his record? Not only should Matthew have considered scrubbing them out, but certainly he shouldn't have added any embarrassing data in, right? No ancient author would have done that. They would have never, ever gone out of their way to add embarrassing details into someone's genealogy. But that's exactly what we see here. I don't know if you noticed the form. You probably can't miss it when the text is being read to you. The form of the genealogy, it repeats over and over. A beget B, and B beget C, and C beget D, right? Over and over again. Yeah, it's the part that the genealogy that kind of puts you to sleep. Well, when the form is like that over and over again, whenever the form is broken, it stands out. It really sticks out, right? When it goes A B, get B, B, B get C, C B, get D, and D went and did this. And then D B, get E, right? You pick it up like that. In this genealogical form, it brings things to your attention. Matthew breaks the form a handful of times. The first couple of times he does it to identify a couple of brothers. One time he breaks the form to identify that David is the king, he says David, David the king, one time he breaks the form to explicitly call out the Babylonian exile. Why would you do that? The Babylonian exile was one of the most shameful, full of failure periods of time in the history of God's people. When you're trying to put together a record of commending Jesus as the Messiah, why would you bring up your greatest national embarrassment? Right? It's like, a, have you ever seen like a best man speech at a wedding reception where the best man is like ribbing the groom over and over and over again? And then it's like, now you're just sharing a bunch of really embarrassing stuff we wish you would stop? That's what's happening here. Why would you bring that up? Why bring up your most embarrassing point, the Babylonian exile? Why explicitly call that out? Five times Matthew breaks the genealogical form to call attention to specific women which is surprising enough in an ancient context where women were often overlooked and written out. But in particular, each of the five women that are brought up in Matthew's genealogy bring with them a story or context of something that's at at best sexually ambiguous and at worst sexually shameful. Tamar tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. Ruth, commentators have been trying to figure out what it means that Ruth uncovered the feet of Boaz on the threshing room floor for hundreds of years. The wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, right? David's adultery and subsequent murder. And finally, Mary, of whom it was said she was with child out of wedlock. Why bring these people up? Why bring up that shame and embarrassment? Not only that, but two of these women are not Israelites. Two of them are outsiders. Rahab is a Canaanite and Ruth is a Moabite. When you're putting together a genealogy trying to commend Jesus as as the capital I Israelite, as the Jewish Messiah, as the true son of David, why on earth would you include data that makes him seem less pure? It directly undermines what the genealogy is trying to do, doesn't it? As we reassess Jesus' genealogy, it's not at all superlative. It's full of blemishes and embarrassments that any other ancient author would have smoothed out or scrubbed out or at least made it look better. They certainly wouldn't have added any of this embarrassing data in. And so all of a sudden it seems that Jesus' own genealogy is much more of a naughty list than a nice one. Jesus' record is not a long list of resounding success. It's full of failure and blemish and embarrassments. And right here, hope dawns for us. Like the first rays of the morning sun cresting the horizon line, burning off the mist of our hiddenness and deceit. Hope dawns for us because our records are like that too. They're full of things to hide and lie about, to forget and wish they weren't there, shames and shifting blames and selfishness that that bind and break our souls. But where failure is present, still hope can be had because Jesus was willing to be called bad. Jesus was willing to be called bad. It looked at first like Jesus' genealogy was this long list of him being good by association, but really it's a list of how Jesus seems to be bad by association. Why would Jesus allow himself to be on a list like this? He allowed it because this has always been part of God's plan. That God would have a servant, a son, that would come and allow himself to be called a transgressor that he might be able to join transgressors and save them. This is what Isaiah 53, 11 and 12 says. After he, the servant, has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. And, and here's the key phrase, he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercessions for the transgressors. This word numbered has precisely this genealogical context. It means he was counted as a transgressor. He was listed as one. It's as though Jesus is saying there's going to be a list of all the people who royally screwed up, who failed, who broke the law, and you're going to find my name on that list too. That's what he says about himself. In Luke 22, just as he's about to go to the cross, where he's about to die a criminal's death, society will number him as a criminal when he's on the cross. And he quotes this passage. He says, It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus is on the naughty list because he put himself there. He allowed himself to be listed among those who have screwed up. This is incredibly good news. And look, this doesn't mean that we don't want to be good and the Bible says all sorts of things about, you know, uh, faith without deeds is dead and all that stuff is true. But if Jesus has allowed himself to be numbered among the transgressors, then we no longer have to be afraid over whether or not a good word is going to be spoken over us. Because Jesus allowed a bad word to be spoken over him. And he joined us in that fear and that experience. When you understand this and receive this as good news, two things happen for you. Two things happen for us. The first thing that that happens Is that we are saved. We are saved. We are saved. Thank God we are saved. We are now in Christ. Christ joins us on the list of ways that we failed. And as a result, when he joins us in that place, all of the things that are true about Christ become true about us. Not the ways that we failed or the blemishes that we have, but all of the good things that deserve to be spoken over Jesus, are spoken over us. His righteousness, his goodness, his belovedness. And finally, we're not just saved, but we become freed. We become freed from fearing that we're bad or fearing that a bad word is going to be spoken over us. And once we're freed from that, we are able to walk out of a prison of living into a false self, living in a fake reality where we need to put on our best airs, and we're free to be known and loved in honest relationship with other people. And that is a freeing feeling, isn't it? That feels really, really good. And I would love, as I bring this sermon to a close, to just invite some of you to to pray along with me. If you need to receive or meet Jesus in either of those places, a being saved, a realizing that Jesus has jumped on to the blemished list and record of your own life and as a result, the things that are spoken over Jesus are spoken over you. If you need to receive that from Jesus today, I would love it if you would pray along with me in your heart or secondly, if you need to receive freedom from the fear of being bad, from the fear that the list and record of your life says a bad word about you to be freed from that. And instead, because Jesus is with you in those things and has allowed your bad things to be spoken over him, that you might be able to live in honest, good, confessional relationship with yourself and with God and other people, feeling the freedom of knowing that you're able to be your true self. Will you join me in prayer for either of those things? Heavenly Father, we, uh, Lord, we feel bad about ourselves in many different ways and places, things that we've failed at, things we haven't lived up to, (laughs) mistakes that we've made. (laughs) And Lord, maybe even more than that, we're afraid that somebody's gonna find out. And we're afraid that they're going to say a bad word over us. And God, that, that fear drives us into lying and hiddenness and shame in ourselves. But God, we today have heard in the name of your son that Jesus is willing to join us in the blemished records of our own lives, in the blemished record, God, of my life, in my failures, in my missed opportunities, in my mistakes, and allow those things to be spoken over him. God, we thank you for that and ask for the faith and the power of your Holy Spirit to receive them in our hearts and in our spirits today. God, would you now fill me with your Holy Spirit and empower me to believe that those things are true and to live in the new reality and new light of this word of the gospel in my life starting now. I ask for these in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. We pray you are encouraged in your walk with God through this podcast. For more information about this church, please visit our website at gallerychurch.com.